by kids listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? there welcome morris speaking here you're listening to episode 51 of love that album the record discussion podcast that sounds very old school when i say record discussion podcast but i guess you know vinyl's coming back amongst all the hipsters anyway uh welcome it's wonderful to uh have your company and speaking of having company i am joined for uh this episode across both ends of the planet and both ends of the time zone i think uh, so from uh, Los Angeles, California, the United States of America, we have Juan Jose de la Cruz from the List Music Podcast. Good morning to you, Juan. Hey, Morris. Hey, Dave. How are you guys? Oh, I, I might as well introduce. And from Melbourne, fellow Melbourneite, David Blom. Good morning. Yeah. Oh, good. That's no, evening for you, isn't it? Of course. Yeah, yeah <laughs> good evening, Morris. Hello. Uh, now, I should explain... Um, I mean, I, I guess if you're on the Love That Album Facebook page and you listened to uh, the little five-minute spiel I sort of put online a few weeks ago and even on the Shooting the Shit episode of a few weeks ago that um, we had some technical difficulties. So this episode that we're going to record for you tonight that you're listening to, we've actually done once before, so we actually know what everyone thinks about the two albums we're going to discuss, but... We're going to pretend like we don't know for your entertainment. I don't know. We might even um, come up with some new stuff. What do you What do you reckon, guys? I, I already forgot about what happened last time. So. Oh, oh good. Okay. My, so. I, even even my thoughts on the albums have <laughs> probably changed. Uh, that's right. You have no written oh. notes. You you you're like a stand up comedian. You're you're working without a net. I've yeah. still got my same notes here, and uh, I've got a few new thoughts though on. on Excellent. The Excellent. So I guess I should. Um, you know, before we get into uh, the albums, uh, I should make yeah, just a couple of more things. Now, for those of you who might not have listened to the uh, Shooting the Shit episode, uh, episode number 50, at the end of the episode, I um, basically said that I'm going to play around a little bit with the format of the show. This won't be what I do every program, but I am going to do it for uh, this one and you know, feasibly the next few. Uh, so in the past, we've always discussed about one album from start to finish, oh, I mean, which we'll still do, but I used to, we used to discuss uh, each song, track by track, you know, what we liked about it musically, lyrically, the themes, and, you know, that still will work for some albums, but, you know, I got to thinking there are probably some albums which won't necessarily warrant the track by track treatment, but will still warrant a very interesting discussion, and so I figured what we'd do is... Um, Every show, well, not every show, but you know, some of the shows, we'll discuss two albums for a shorter period of time, and rather than going track by track, we'll just, you know, gab on as we see fit in what we like about the album. Obviously, you know, referring to individual songs to illustrate a point, but 
it won't necessarily be where right, we're going to talk about song one now we're going to talk about song two now we're going to talk about song three uh well we will do that for some shows in the future but we're going to have a few episodes now where we're just sort of going to talk in a more general and broad scale uh if you have any feedback about that whether you like the new format if you don't like the new format i'd love the feedback because basically i'm a very lonely insecure guy and i just like to hear from people out there so let us know if you like the format hopefully you do and I guess most importantly for this episode, we should tell you what the albums we're going to discuss. So um, each of the two guests has selected an album for tonight. So Juan, tell us the album that you've picked for tonight. Oh, I don't remember. Oh. <laughs> uh, I don't I remember Ab- which one Abba's, I chose. I know Abba's I know Greatest that... Hits, wasn't it? Uh, no, uh, you suggested no. King Crimson. I suggested, uh, that's right, King Crimson's In the Court of the Crimson King. Indeed, indeed you did. And Dave, your choice was? Uh, mine was the Flaming Lips, Yoshimi Battles, the Pink Robots. Now, I thought this was a particularly good pairing because, you know, King Crimson's In the Court of the Crimson King is, you know, a renowned prog album. And being a bit of a newbie to the Flaming Lips, I sort of thought that this album was you know, a bit progish, and we found some connections between the two bands. So I think this is a, a pretty good pairing. So what we'll do, we'll go to a uh, quick break. Uh, play a promo for another podcast because you know I like to plug the other podcasts and I, I, I wish that uh, you guys over at the List Music Podcast would uh, would make a promo that I could play on the show because damn it you know you guys are always plugging love that album so I'd like to be able to sort of do something like play a, play a promo I mean get get Ricardo off his ass I mean he's a filmmaker damn it yeah no I'll I'll let him know yeah yeah he'll he'll probably make up some excuse I mean I'm probably gonna have to make it for him I think. <laughs> so, I don't doubt that. Mm, all right, so we'll we'll play a promo for uh, another podcast, you know, and we'll we'll all go and get refreshed and come back, and we'll start off. Uh, we'll go in chronological order. We'll talk about King Crimson's in the Court of the Crimson King as our uh, first album for the show, and uh, we'll be back. You're listening to Love That Album, episode fifty-one, with Morris, Juan, and Dave. We'll be back shortly. Yes, me again. Hey there, boys and girls. This is Maverick New York filmmaker Abel Ferrara, director of such films as Driller Killer, Miss 45, Bad Lieutenant, China Girl, Fear City, and Nine Lives of the Wet Pussy. When I'm not out power drilling hoboes, smoking rock cocaine, hanging out with Bruce Willis, uh, when I'm not doing that, I'm listening to The Milk Creeps. It's a podcast, whatever the fuck that is. They covered my movie Driller Killer on their very first episode, so they're obviously sick fucks. If you like that kind of thing, check them out on Facebook or iTunes. Yeah, they're called the Mill Creeps. All right. For more information, go to facebook.com slash millcreeps, millcreeps.lipson.com, or look up the Mill Creeps on iTunes or Stitcher. And we're back from break. Morris here. Juan there. Dave also there. Yes, not, not, not quite as there as Juan is, because that's the other side of the world to us. But, but um, have I gone and said enough on this show about how much I love Skype and you know, technology allows us to do stuff like this. It's just fantastic. If you're bored with that, listeners, then please feel free to write in and tell me because, once again, I'm insecure and love the feedback. Uh, now, one thing I have neglected to do before we get into our discussion of the uh, King Crimson's In the Court of the Crimson King album is make mention that we uh, will have... One thing that won't change about the format of the show is we'll continue to be playing 
the brilliant segments as presented by Eric Peterson, a.k.a. Eric Reanimator. Uh, he does a great segment called An Album I Love, and this time around he has um, an album from a band called Monster Magnet. Uh, the name of the album is called Dopes to Infinity. So uh, that'll be coming up uh, uh, later on in the show. Probably we might play in between the two albums. Actually, that might be a, a bit of a change of format. Rather than playing it towards the end of the show, we'll play it in the middle of the show. So, you know, I just, I'm, I'm really all about um, keeping things fresh. I don't know. Well, see what you think. Anyway, if you, if you like it, let me know. If you don't like it, well, I won't say listen to another podcast because that would do me a disservice, but... Anyway, if you don't well, like it, listen to my podcast. Now, if you do like it, keep on listening. You can listen to more than one <laughs> podcast. Uh, we'll, we'll give you a chance later on to talk about uh, the List Music podcast, a, a show that I dearly love. And um, well, actually, I mean, you recently had Eric Reanimator on the show, schooling you in uh, '70s punk. I mean, yeah. So very and quickly, what was did. what was that what was that experience like? It was fun. I learned a lot. Um, Eric definitely knows his knows his shit. Um, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. I I had like I went in with very little research of seventies punk and just broad, very very broad knowledge. So I'm glad I learned a lot from him. Look, you know the the nicest thing about that was listening to that show. I mean, I I don't pretend to sort of be very knowledgeable about punk, but one thing that I you know sort of had learned and I thought it was interesting that he took that angle was being able to show that, you know, people's you know, conceptions about punk as being, you know, loud and thrashy and guitar-y. I mean, yeah, that is a style of punk, but he sort of showed that, you know, it's a lot about the attitude and, you know, a lot about the power and it can be melodic uh, and, you know, almost power poppy. And also, you know, he showed the link between uh, you know, punk and reggae and all the different directions that it went into. So, yeah, it was very educational. Um, and I should also sort of point out that he did an episode of Love That Album with uh, our good friend Tim Merrill, which we dubbed The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Punk. I had nothing to do with that episode, but um, uh, they came in to uh, help me out when I needed an episode put up and I didn't have the time to record. So that was also a very educational episode. So, uh, yes, uh, Eric and Tim definitely know their stuff. You ought to uh, uh, meet up with Tim and get him on the show. He'll, uh, he'll, give, you a, he'll give you some schooling, that's for sure. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Yeah. All right, anyway, we'll talk more about the List Music podcast later on in the show. Give it a great big plug, but for the moment, we're here to talk about In the Court of the Crimson King by the band King Crimson. So I guess I should ask as a starting off point, uh, one, why did you choose this album? Or what are your early memories of it, I should ask as well. Oh, my early memories? Ah. Oh. See, this is the part where I actually hope I wish I remembered what I said before. Um, <laughs> well, it's okay, no one will contradict you. That's true. Well, one of you guys can. But, um, <laughs> I, I honestly like it's. Uh, I'm trying to remember. Well, I know I was introduced to them because um, I know they were a major influence on my favorite band, Tool. Um, so I was I, I kind of sought them out because of that, um, and then I you know. I picked up this album, and uh, this is the album I've been holding on to the longest time. Let me ask you, do you have it on CD or do you have it on vinyl? I have it on CD, yeah. Okay. It, I mean, look, you know, normally I'm not necessarily going to sort of like go, you know, the whole vinyl versus CD debate. I mean, I do have thoughts, but um, one advantage I can see of having that album is because it's just got the best cover artwork, uh, and really to have vinyl of that 
of that album would be uh, something magnificent just for the for the, uh, for the cover. If yeah. yeah. The, I, the other question with sorry, the other question with the CDV vinyl was whether it's a post two thousand and three CD or not. Oh yes. Why so? Um, from two thousand and three onwards, uh, the CDs were mastered from the original tapes. Oh, um, okay. which they had found locked away in a cabinet somewhere. Now, I know that there was like a, a box set out there, I think, which had like about 10,000 different versions of the album, you know, mono, stereo, a new mix, um, the you know, Robert Fripp humping an elephant in the background mix or something like that. You know, there's just so much on there. So was that part of uh, that re-release? No, it was, it was part of a, an official remastering. In 2003, where they actually managed to find the original tapes, mm. and it was basically, from memory, it was a, a luck discovery. Right, right. Um, so let me ask you again, Juan. So you've you've gone and stated, you know, that Tool, uh, uh, you know, the band that you really, really love, had gone and stated that um, this album. Uh, or, or rather King Crimson in general were a big influence on them. So when you first you know, heard the album, did you say, I get why they like this, or did it take a few listens? You know, what, was your, what was your general feeling? No, I, immediately you can, you can totally tell the influence. Um, I mean, Tool's also another very prog band. It's, I guess it's more in, in, the, in the metal genre, but it, it's, got very, it's got a lot of prog elements, and you can definitely hear the influence. So um, I was used to it, and then, and then the fusion of, of all these uh, genres for that King Crimson used. I, I was a fan of each one, so it right. didn't it didn't take a, it didn't take long at all. It was practically upon first listen, I fell in love with it. Nice, nice. Okay, so Dave, you were the uh, King Crimson newbie here uh, when I um, got you to join us for this episode. I said, right, we're going to be doing this album, and um, you know, this was your first time listen. So your first thoughts. Well, I had heard uh, 21st Century Schizoid Man and Epitaph prior to listening to the album in its entirety. Okay. I too was uh, taken as well with um, the album cover that was um, um, just just a wonderful picture of um, the Schizoid Man on the front cover and the Crimson King on the inside of it. Um, and the album itself, I, I just found it took me to places that were, were just that I'd never been before right. with an album. I really loved it from first listen. Right. Um, I'd be, we, we were speaking a little bit earlier on about uh, Eric Reanimator doing your um, list music podcast and talking about punk, and I guess you know the appeal to a lot of people. Uh, about you know, about punk music was it's often simplicity and it's honestness and I think I know that a lot of people have gone and said that you know punk was sort of a wake up call and a reaction to what a lot of was going on in the 70s with things like progressive rock and you know it's multiple time signature changes and it's complexities and it's uh, many years of schooled musicianship and it was a big reaction against that I'd certainly be interested to know what he thought about that, but um, you know, for mine, I mean, I remember watching this uh, documentary that was on the BBC Four, and I think one you said you'd seen this as well. Yeah. Um, 
and I don't remember who it was that said it, if it was Rick Wakeman or someone else had gone and said that, you know, maybe it was Arthur Brown had said that, um, you know, they were excited in you know, these musicians who'd started off in the early 60s. Uh, they're excited by seeing, you know, what rock could do. But a lot of these people were into prog rock, were, you know, classically trained musicians. They were excited by the power and uh, you know, the volume, the sheer volume of, of rock, but wanted to be able to use their chops, uh, their well-honed chops for, um, uh, for creating rock and didn't feel that they should necessarily hold back. Um, so I, I don't know whether you know honesty is uh, or, or lack thereof is a, a good expression when talking about prog rock like you would with uh, with punk rock, but um, certainly there, there's something which on an album like this, I mean I know that prog rock certainly went to other areas which I don't necessarily find appealing, but there's something about this album, I, I think possibly because it's one of the very early ones and they were still experimenting, that is really very, very exciting. Um, so I, I, I think you've already gone and mentioned 21st Century Schizoid Man, Dave. So let's let's um, let's talk a little bit about that. I know we said we weren't going to go song by song, but this is uh, a really incredible introduction. In a way, it's sort of different to what you hear on the rest of the album. You're, I mean, okay. So both of your thoughts on the, on that song or that as a start to the album. Well, I find that um, this album has very much a loud song, quiet song, loud song, quiet song, loud song for okay. the five tracks to it. And really, Schizoid Man just hits you with a wall of sound. The, the big saxophone sound, the big chords, it, it really does um, hit you with a burst. Mm. I would agree with that sentiment. Did, did either of you find the fact that there is a saxophone on 21st Century Schizoid Man a little bit unusual? I mean, I know, like, when it sort of gets to that middle part of the song, it almost reminds me of uh, uh, Yakety Sax from uh, from the Benny Hill show. I almost, you know, you listen to that, and um, I almost want to go sort of, like, pat bald men on the head. <laughs> I, I was more inclined to think um, more Pink Floyd. It, it had that... Um, feel of like dark side of the moon the oh. the saxophone in say money or... but, but floyd never played that fast no very true but it having having the big sort of sax solo mm. and having it standing out there right right at the front right um i suppose given that this was also sort of before dark side of the moon one can sort of look at whether floyd were uh, influenced by this album or not one. Mm -hmm. uh, um, I don't know. I never really, I never really paid that much attention to the sax until you brought it up. Okay. Uh, I mean, look, you know, this, uh, what I really love about this particular track as an album opener is, you know, we get this sort of crunching heavy rock for for the bulk of it, and that sax section in the middle, you know, it, it's sort of like a jazzy midsection. I mean, you know, you've got that sax feel going on there. And you've got Robert Fripp doing this absolutely crazy-ass guitar solo, but it's not like a histrionics all-over-the-shop type guitar solo. In fact, really, I mean, given that Robert Fripp was sort of like, you know, designated, I don't know, officially or unofficially, the leader of the band, but he's certainly the most famous member of the band. So it seems unusual for that that there's, apart from the guitar solo that we get on uh, 21st Century Schizoid Man, that it's 
this album is almost guitar solo free. It's not, you know, Robert Fripp is often cited by guitar heads as something of a hero, and yet, you know, this is far from being a guitar hero sort of album. Uh, this, and, and really, the, the, the solo that we have here is more like for, you know, jazz fans rather than for out and out guitar fans. At least that's the way I see it. But I think for me, the real heroes of this tune, especially on that jazzy bit in the middle, would be Michael Giles on drums and Greg Lake on bass because there's all this stop-start sort of thing going on and it's, I don't know, just really, really incredible. Yeah, um, I think it's a... I, maybe I, maybe that's why I never paid attention to it. I just thought of it like as like a jazz-type deal. Yeah, and, yeah, and it, it. I don't know, it's just... Uh, I, I never, I never really like thought to isolate the the saxophone and sound and and even think about the the solo, the guitar solo itself. I just like I think of it like as a like as a, a jazz band just kind of like riffing off of each other and and right. just playing. And you you could see that they were giving each other space to express. Um, the the right. other thing that really sort of stands to the fore with this song are the angry, distorted lyrics. The, the messages about the Vietnam War right. and the hatred poured upon uh, Sparrow Agnew, the uh, Vice President of the United States. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, you know, I, I know that like in our previous discussions, I know that you said that the lyrics on this album sort of really hit home for you a lot. Uh, not so much for me, but this is one song where it really does. I think the lyrics on this are really, really clever, not just clever, but uh, yeah, they, they sort of do hit an emotional chord very, very much. Um, uh, you know, what was he saying? A uh, blood rack barbed wire, politician's funeral pyre, innocence raped with napalm fire, 21st century schizoid man. And then there's also like even a verse, I hadn't sort of even thought about this, on, on uh, consumerism. I mean, you know, really this is 1969 and it's probably the third verse in particular is more relevant than ever. You know, death seed, blind man's greed, poets starving, children's bleed, nothing he's got he really needs. And I, I think, you know, here in uh, this day and age, you know, we, we have to have, you know, whatever, the, the iPod or iPhone number 7000 and uh, whatever the latest gadget's going to be, you know, we've got to go out at midnight to uh, the Apple store to go out and buy it, you know, just for the sake of of having it, I mean, yeah, I'm not. And I'm having not, it first. Yeah, exactly. I mean, look, I, I'm not going to, you know, say that I don't like having, you know, certain consumerist items, but you know, the fact that no one seems to be able to wait, uh, everyone's got to have it now, and there's all this build-up. Really, this that lyric just sort of hit hit me even stronger than uh, you know than when I first heard the album years ago. Um, any, any other thoughts about about that? I mean, we should really should be covering, I, I guess, you know, more of the album in general. But um, you, you've already gone and mentioned, um, uh, Dave, that you know, there's a bit of this uh, loud, quiet, loud, quiet, loud sort of thing going on. I mean, do you? Yeah, sa- well, go on. Yeah, well, um, moving into the next track, I talk to the wind. Uh, you were mentioning sort of the lack of uh, guitar solos, um, yet. In I Talk to the Wind, there's a nice sort of quiet ringing guitar throughout the um, song whenever the, um, the chorus is sung. Sure, but it's not a, it's not a solo like in the um, it's in, no, in, in the traditional sense. No, it's it's more 
more the um, understated, shorter, smaller riffs right. when placed in. I mean, I guess, I guess, like with a song like I, I talk to the wind, it, I like the sound of the words, necess- rather than necessarily, you know, um, what is actually being uh, written. I, mean, I, I guess you know, lyrically, it's sort of like it seems to me like it's a product of its time, though, you know, not all, not necessarily all, always thematically limited to those times but um, I, I guess you know, we, we, you know what he's trying to convey I find interesting without necessarily you know, the, the, the exact lyrics themselves so you know, I, I guess you know, each generation feels a frustration of being on the outside looking in and I think that's what this particular song conveys I, I find the, the, um, the concept interesting without necessarily um, uh, the, the lyrics themselves in this song, but um, I, I get, yeah. Uh, but otherwise, it's, it's interesting that it's "I talk to the wind" rather than like "I talk to a wall." <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's very much you know another thing that's a product of its time. I'm not sure. I wonder whether someone today would ever uh, uh, write a song in, like in a conventional pop album yeah. about talking to the wind without being called a hippie. Or were, were they talking about peeing into it? <laughs> Yeah, right. I, 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 I piss into the wind. That's that's the punk version. So, uh, so uh, any other thoughts in general? Um, with with that track, really do like the haunting flute. It, right. Really, there in the forefront. Very obvious, of course, but it um really does carry carry the melody and gives it a haunting sort of um feel of the wind blowing. Right, right. I mean, I guess uh, this song and maybe the rest of the album is more what I would have, you know, expected from what we would term like a prog rock album. I mean, you know, to me, 21st Century Schizoid Man is like a mixture of uh, hard rock and jazz. And, you know, make no mistake, I guess that's what, you know, the, the prog rock contains elements of that. But I guess the, the majesty, um, even you know, in, in its quiet points like in songs like this you know there's a quiet understated majesty and songs like uh, I, I talk to the wind and moon child uh, and there's this um, full-on regal majesty of uh, in the court of the crimson king and, and uh, epitaph now I, I we should probably sort of have a bit of a chat about epitaph i mean gosh there we are we are doing song by song but never mind we'll get the feel of it uh, i know that this is something in particular that really really impressed you dave so yeah, um, definitely my favourite track of the album. It um, it's it has, I suppose, the feel of the songwriter saying, "I'm the only sane person in the world, and the world around me is um, going mad." And am I the only person who's uh, able to see the direction in the way that the world's heading? Mm-hmm. And um, how they'll be, be remembered is for being confused at at what's going on in the world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I guess once again, this is another song where I I'm interested in the sentiment without necessarily liking uh, the actual lyrics chosen. So, um, you know, when you when you hear lines like you know, "the fate of all mankind I see is in the hands of fools," I mean, I don't know. I I, I think I automatically turn off whenever I hear uh, you know, the word "fools" used in a in a <laughs> song lyric. I don't know why that is, but but it just 
I just I imagine a really bad Z-grade swords and sandals epic film, you know. Um, what are you talking about, you fools? You will you will ruin the fate of all mankind. And it, it just sounds like, you know, bad year 9, year 10 poetry. But, but on the other hand, the sentiment itself, the fate of all mankind, I see, is in the hands of fools. And, you know, you sort of like you know, just open your newspaper uh, and you know, see what's going on in the world. And you think, well, you know, between 1969 and 2013, really scarily, not much has changed. Any thoughts, one? Um, yeah, <laughs> I don't think I can. I don't think I can be able to listen to that line and not think of like you know what you were saying. Um, <laughs> thanks a lot. Oh, oh, good. I, I, I live to serve. I live to serve. I mean, yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, look, does, is, is that a is that a valid comment? That's just. It's just, I, I think I think that's just you. I don't think that's a yeah. I, I, think, I think it's more just you, Morris. Yeah. But, all right. Well. Yeah, yeah. Um. And I I think it is, <laughs> I think it is very prophetic in terms of um looking forward to the future. You know, I still feel tomorrow that I'll be crying. You know, it's um no matter how much time passes that things will still be the same. Mm-hmm. It is quite sort of pessimistic in its outlook. Yeah, yep, yep, for sure. Um, one thing I, I guess I like about this from a musical perspective, I mean, I, I know that we sort of briefly discussed this the last time we were talking about the album, is, well, this, I guess the elephant in the room, Greg Lake. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know that new one, but, but certainly um, uh, Dave and I had discussed at work uh, about, you know, Greg Lake, what happened, where did ELP come from? But um, his voice on this... It, it really is. It really is terrific, and um, I think you know the the sense of drama uh, that the that the band convey, and really they are in top form. Um, the sense of drama is really heightened by uh, Greg Lake's vocals. Um, any 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 thoughts between you guys now on um, on uh, on the vocals? On? Well, oh, I, I love it. I, I I mean, I don't go ahead, Dave. I don't know what to say. I just I love it. Yeah, um, what we're hearing with Greg Lake's vocals are from the angriness of the schizoid band to the quiet, the moody I talk to the wind, to the fragile sound of Epitaph, Mm. um, to the very regal and over-the-top chord of the Crimson King. There's a huge variety of emotions that are very, very well carried here in the vocals. Mm Mm-hmm. There's, um, uh, I, I guess, as well on the musicianship, um, I've already mentioned Michael Giles beforehand, and there's this behind-the-backbeat type of fill that he does. It, it's, it's the same fill that he does all over the album, but you know, I don't necessarily see that as a bad thing. It warrants a lot of playing, and, and um, his playing here, you know, once again, is absolutely beautiful. And we've got the timpanis. Uh, and so when they're doing that glorious fade out, he's doing this uh, sort of uh, this fill that reminds me a little bit of maybe a more controlled Keith Moon, you know, Keith Moon being kept in check. Uh, but yeah, absolutely, um, absolutely gorgeous stuff here. Uh, now, my one weak point for the album is maybe the last five, six minutes of uh, the next song on the album which is Moonchild. Now, I know you two guys have uh, 
have a difference of opinion to me. So I'll, I'll let you guys sort of you know, espouse yeah. its virtues first. No, well, this this was where I was in agreement with you, Morris. I was, oh, were you? Oh, so I, th yeah. I thought. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, well, maybe. No, maybe this is where. This is where uh, one. Um, okay. One. The the uh, the defence. The defence has a chance to say something about the last six minutes of Moonchild. I had, <laughs> uh, it doesn't bother me. It, it the way it kind of dies down and kind of becomes very uh, sporadic. I guess in the in the notes that they're playing, mm -hmm. um, it's is very you know very reminiscent of of like stuff I listen to today, like even more, like modern stuff. Right. So, so, so who, uh, would you, who would you compare it to? I mean, I, I, compare, I know you're talking I, I, about Tool overall, but Tool wouldn't be doing something like, like Moonchild. We should probably describe what's going on here for, for those of you who haven't heard the song. But, you know, the first three, four minutes is like a traditional song structure. And then is like a conversation between instruments, you know, jazz style. So you'll get, I don't know, it sounds like a saw being played or just, it, it sounds like a whole lot of noodling. And it, you think, all right, is this going to go somewhere? And then it just sort of fades out. But I think you made the point last time that it sort of, Made you think? Well, yeah, any a, a lot of um, uh, a, a lot of jazz people would do something like that. Was, was that something that a point that you made, or am I, um, did I read that somewhere else? You, you probably know better than I do. Oh, gosh, okay. uh, but but uh, I guess it, what you were saying about like it reminds me of um, like like a band like uh, the Mars Volta, which is you know fairly recent band. Um, I mean they've broke up now, but uh, it it sounds very reminiscent of that, and I guess. So I'm used to it. It doesn't doesn't. It never bothered me. I never really thought about it. Okay, Dave. I guess uh, for the last six and a half minutes of that track, the skip to next track button does come <laughs> in handy. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, it, it starts off beautifully enough, and you know, sort of does sound a little bit like like uh, maybe a, a lot of what became early '70s folk rock. Um, I'm trying to remember. Actually, you know, it's more. Maybe I talk to the wind in a, maybe in a uh, more state that I can compare this to, but I, I guess because they're both gentle tracks. But um, I, do you remember what the name of the band that Bon Scott was in several Fraternity. years ago? Fraternity. And he's playing the recorder or the flute, at least in the film clip. Now, what was the big song that they had? It's That sort of reminds me of both Moonchild and I Talk to the Wind. Do you remember what the track was? No, no, I don't. But I do remember seeing Bon Scott on recorder. Ah, oh, we, look, we're gonna. Uh, it'll be easy enough to find on YouTube. We're gonna have to put that on the, on the Love That Album Facebook page. But yeah. um, well, that, that's fine. I mean, I don't know, uh, Juan, have you heard? Um, have you heard uh, any of the stuff that Bon Scott did pre-ACDC? I mean, can you imagine Bon Scott without tattoos, wearing a long sleeve shirt with a long beard and looking like a hippie? Extra no, of a pipe band. No, I, I I never never heard it, so I have no. to seek that out. I'll I'll put it on the uh, Facebook page. It's uh, very funny. But but these these two tracks, I talk to the wind and uh, Moonchild, sort of get me in mind of uh, Bon Scott playing the playing the recorder. Um, but anyway, notwithstanding that, um, oh no, that, that was more I guess about I talk to the wind. I I, I I seem to be going all over the place here, but um, I, I'll come back come back to Moonchild in a second but I talked to the wind and maybe Appetite so the first half of the album seems to be really born of their frustrations with what was happening on you know, the, the, the theatre of war if, I guess if you want to call it that 
uh, in, in Vietnam, and I guess with uh, Moonchild in the Court of the Crimson King, they're doing, I guess, lyrically more what became, I guess, uh, traditional fare for uh, for uh, uh, folk rock and prog rock bands talking about medieval themes and stuff like that, which I just absolutely have no idea really what's what's going on. If either of you have any idea, please enlighten me. But musically I, is where I get. I have no idea. Oh, um, let's talk about the uh, the final track on the album, which I guess for me is the highlight and was probably my entry point into King Crimson. I had an anthology years ago called the Compact King Crimson, and this might have been the first tune on the album. Uh, and this is what really drew me in: hook like and hook line and sinker. Uh, just it, it, it sounds. Everything is really in its place. There's nothing that's really improvised here. You know, you've got your sections either right. We've got this section where the main theme is played with the Mellotron. We actually haven't spoken about the Mellotron here because you know, the Mellotron's used heavily on Epitaph as well, isn't it, Dave? Yeah, it is. Um, yeah, beautiful rolling uh, uh, tape loops um, mm. in the Mellotron. I suppose it was a, a precursor to a more advanced synthesizer but right. it just had a really sort of um weird unique sound to it right now it's it's always been an instrument i've loved the sound of it and and they use it they use it um to a in a different sort of way to how they use uh in epitaph i think you know epitaph it's more like a um, not a background but it's more like providing a solid foundation but yeah um, well, but here it's more like a lead instrument in a way yeah well you you had i've I think from memory, there was um, three different sounds that you could choose from with the loop. Right. Um, I believe believe it had like a, a brass type sound, a strings type sound, and a flute type sound. Okay. And um, so they'd flip between all three of them. Oh, really? Okay, so I didn't know that. Yeah, so it... it it was a bit like the the later versions of your electronic organ, where you'd you'd have uh, your flute sounds, you'd have your strings, and you'd be able to control them just by manipulating um, either the knobs or the buttons, and you could pretty much turn them on and off. So, do you know they're still making mellotrons today? Yeah, they are. Wow, they fantastic! Are. Yeah, um, I think they're up to about Mark Four. Oh, wow. I, I imagine all the bands that sort of want to go out and use them are probably sort of scouring around to try and find ones that are, you know, 40 years old or something like that. But um, but it's nice to know that uh, they're still in production. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, so look, really, I, I think that this is uh, just such an exciting song and such a really great way uh, to end the album. I mean, like all these tunes are like about eight, nine minutes each. Uh, there's no three minute pop going on here and in a way I, I don't remember if we spoke about this last time I see uh, maybe not the whole album but maybe you know tunes like Epitaph and In the Court of the Crimson King as a, um, uh, maybe successes to uh, Procol Harum you know, and pretty much I think in a way Procol Harum still sort of you know were uh, they were still sort of like doing the three and four minute pop tunes but uh, I could sort of see that this was a logical extension from 
what they were doing. I mean, were either you fans of Procol Harum or, you know, in, even in like you know, a few songs or in, in album form? One? Um, no, the, the only, the only um, reason I heard of them was because of that BBC documentary and um, I've been meaning to search them out. Right. Um, but I haven't up to this point. I mean, look, obviously the, the most famous song White a shade of pale and um, Homburg, which I think I'm not sure if that was the follow-up single or not, but you know another great song. It actually sort of sounds very similar to uh, White a shade of pale. But I, I went out and got myself an album um, that they put out uh, a couple of years later called A Salty Dog, and I just love that album to pieces. It's um, uh, I think there's a bit of a nautical theme going on on uh, that record. Might have to talk about that album somewhere down the track. But um, yeah, I, I know. Anyway, look, I see in the court of the Crimson King and Epitaph as being sort of like logical follow-throughs to um, to Procol Harum. Does that sort of seem something that you suggest as well, Dave? Does it sort of have that? Feel yeah, here? yeah, it does have a bit of that feel. However, you, you're talking a, a short novella as opposed to a full war and peace. <laughs> right, right. I, I guess I mean, maybe more as a succession. I'm not necessarily saying right one is the same as the other, but I, I'd be surprised if um, King Crimson had, weren't fans of Procol Harum at the time, and, and um, yeah, I'd be surprised if there was absolutely no influence at all. But yeah, I, I do take your point that uh, you know, really they were they were maybe you know, shorter. Not quite poppier, but you know, sort of uh, shorter ver- uh, versions of Majesty. And, yeah, uh, King Crimson went and sort of like took that to a to a. King Crimson scene. went and took it into more of an epic type theatre, right. and um, in the case of the Court of the Crimson King, it's it's about taking that regal sort of uh, world of, I suppose, middle age um, kingdoms and um, really expanding upon it. Right. Um, turning I, I, it almost turning it into something that's almost operatic. Yep. Yeah, yeah, I'd see that. I'd see that, uh, but without having the uh, the lady with the Viking helmets. Yeah. Right. That's the that's the best part of opera. I don't know what you guys are talking about. <laughs> you know, I, when I when I th- and I used to go to the opera as a kid, but nowadays when I think of opera, I tend to think of uh, the fat male tenor and Bugs Bunny conducting and you know, holding his glove up in the air while this guy sings such a high note that the opera house collapses around him. You, you, have you seen that cartoon? We have seen that cartoon. Yeah. Thousands of times. Right, good. Just, just make sure we're all on the same page. Um, all right. So, look, I think at that stage we've uh, pretty much gone and um, said... Uh, uh, either of you guys have got any final thoughts you want to say about the album that we haven't uh, already gone and conveyed? Mm, uh, no. <laughs> I love it. That's all. It. That's all I say. Dave, I think we've got it covered nicely. All right. So for those of you who haven't heard the album before, that's a big thumbs up from uh, the three of us. Something that you know has some sense of majesty and probably a really good entry point for those of you who might have been scared off from uh, prog rock with you know multiple time signature changes and and the like. It's it, it's accessible. It's exciting. Um, you've got half the album that that covers uh, you know, political events and things of war for those of you who are inclined to want some sort of uh, protest and substance to your uh, 
to your lyrical themes. So uh, yeah, there's there's plenty going on here. The musicianship is really really terrific, and uh, really yeah, just uh, a good entry point for those of you who uh, want to maybe sort of sniff around and see what prog rock is about. And it should be mentioned as well, you know, King Crimson have made you know stacks of albums, and uh, the only other album that I've really heard in detail was Lizard, and I know that uh, it's often considered that they went from album to album doing different things and no album really sounds quite like in the court of the crimson king and I've, i believe that some people think that this first album was their most fully realized which you know would be a bit of a depressing thought thinking well it's all downhill from here but um uh, really i mean I, I guess you know you can feel free to uh, uh, explore see what else they did but this is a really good entry point for the band and for prog rock in general i'd say so yeah. i think what we're going to do at this point is uh, have a break and go listen to Eric Reanimator's album I Love segment. I was mentioning it uh, a little earlier on. And he, as I mentioned, he's going to be discussing the album Dopes to Infinity by Monster Magnet. And uh, I really enjoyed listening to this segment and it's sort of uh, listening to the music brought to mind. And he mentions this in the segment, uh, an album that I'm going to be discussing with uh, him on the show in a few weeks down the track, the Stooges' raw power. So uh, anyway, have a listen to Eric, and we'll be back in a few minutes to discuss the Flaming Lips, Yoshini Battles, the Pink Robots. You're listening to Love That Album with Juan, Dave, and myself. We'll be back shortly. Take it away, Eric, the orchestra leader. I want two, I want two, three, four. Hallelujah, Now it's time for an album I love with Eric Reanimator. spirit of King Crimson and the Flaming Lips, I figured I'd go a little bit more punk, heavy metal, space rock, psychedelic kind of stuff. And this time around, we're going to be talking about the Monster Magnet album, Dopes to Infinity, from 1995. Coming from the 80s punk underground band Shrapnel, Monster Magnet is itself an extension of 70s hard rock with definitely bands like Captain Beyond and 
Hawkwind, most especially in their sound, but also a lot of the Stooges and the MC5 sneaking in there as well. The Dopes to Infinity album was, in fact, the first album there that I actually connected with. It's a droning rock comic book dripping in cult trappings. Let's take a listen. Monster Magnet in general is that there is a energetic wall of sound that drones but never really bores. Lyrically, there's also a lot of reference to 1960s Marvel comics with Jack Kirby overall being an influence. He actually gets name-checked in the song Melt on a later Monster Magnet album. But Dopes to Infinity is just a killer, psych, 90s alternative record It's one of those instances where the blending of those sounds, the hard rock, the punk, the psychedelic, the wall of sound, the fuzzy feedback, all of it comes together and coalesces into something that stands on its own. The only other band from the era that I can think of who experimented in this area was the band Clutch, and maybe Caius, but not really. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that buried within this wash of space noise is one of the great singles of the 1990s. It is the 90s answer to the great anthems of the 1970s in that it echoes both the Stooges, Search and Destroy, and Sonic Reducer by the Dead Boys. The song is Negasonic Teenage Warhead, and it captures so much of that time and place, that angst and that energy. It's one of my favorites, and we're going to end now with a good chunk of it, so enjoy, and I'll catch you all on the flip side.
And we're back. Thanks again, Eric, for another great album I love segment. Uh, and I, I got to say that um, I, I'm, I'm not sure what Eric will think about this, but uh, the lead singer of Monster Magnet reminded me a little bit of Paul Stanley from Kiss. I don't know whether that's sacrilege or whether Eric would concede that, but um, there you go. That's uh, that's my thought for that. But yeah, musically, I could definitely see uh, the Stooges' raw power in that. And uh, a couple of episodes down the track, that is one of two albums that Eric and I are going to be discussing, this Iggy and the Stooges' raw power. I've been reading the uh, Iggy Pop biography, Open Up and Bleed, very recently, and uh, it's been quite fascinating. So um, I think I'll be ready when uh, when Eric wants to have that discussion, because you know Eric knows a lot, so, but I've got to be able to take it up to him. So that'll be a lot of fun, talking about uh, the Stooges' raw power. But that's a couple of episodes down the track. So we're still on episode 51, myself here in Melbourne, Dave in Melbourne, and Juan in uh, LA. And the second album of the episode that we're going to be discussing is Yoshimi Battles the Pink Robots by The Flaming Lips. So, um, okay, before I ask you, Dave, about your early uh, experiences with uh, this album, I've got to say that... uh, all I knew about the Flaming Lips, really, before um, before listening to this album in detail, was um, their song "She Don't Use Jelly," which Triple R, our uh, radio station, community radio station here in Melbourne, used to play a lot on the uh, breakfast show. And I really, really, really dig the uh, uh, Ben Folds Five version of "She Don't Use Jelly," which is done more as a samba tune than as a, an indie rock tune. And really, Yoshimi Battles of Pink Robots is like a thousand miles away. Uh, you know, really, she don't use jelly to Yoshimi Battles of Pink Robots is like you know, the Beatles' "Please, Please Me" to Sergeant Pepper. You know, instrumentally, there's there's uh, a lot of uh, there's a lot of progression. You know, neither one is necessarily bad. You can prefer one over the other, but uh, but there's a lot of different stuff going on between the two recordings so um, Dave we'll hand it over to you for uh, for a bit to tell us you know, what were your initial thoughts about the flaming lips and w- w- was this where you started with them? Yeah it was uh, really where I got my foot in I too first heard the lips <coughs> sorry <coughs> on Triple R and um, it was actually on their computer show bite into it okay uh, they were playing the Yoshimi Battles Pink Robots Part 1 and it it really had a um, sort of computer game type feel to it and so that's why they were running it on that show. Right. Well, when you say computer type feel, we should sort of stress we're talking very old type computer and certainly old type computer games. There's lots of bleeps and beeps and things like that all, all, all over it. Yeah, and it also has a very sort of 1980s uh, Japanese-type cartoon feel to it. So something like a Battle of the Planets G-Force-type mm. feel. Mm. And when you look at the cover, it it's very reminiscent of that. Right. I mean, I, I guess what drew me in, because I know that you know when you said, let's do this, I was a bit wary because a good friend of mine years ago had tried to introduce me to the album and I was too narrow and I didn't pay much attention. But I guess what I really like overall about this album is the fact that it, the electronics on the album 
augmented. It's not the album's raison d'etre. And I know that you know a lot of people say, well, you know, electronics is their bag, and you know that's that's fine. But for me, for someone who till now has really just sort of been more. No synthesizers were used in the making of Morris's <laughs> album collection. <laughs> Correct. Thank you, uh, Freddie Mercury. Uh, but e- but even they went uh, started saying, well, some synthesizers were used in the making of his album. Uh, that, but uh, you know, real. I, I like the fact that they use electronics to augment uh, the natural instrumentation here, and it, it, it just works an absolute treat. And I think probably one of the great strengths of the album is in fact its arrangement so it's not just it's not just electronics augmenting but you've got in songs if you listen through headphones you're hearing uh, a celeste here on a song or or, a flute there on a song it's it's just little bits and pieces it's almost like they said hey why don't we throw this in why don't we It, it almost sounds like it's been put together and i don't mean this in a bad way piecemeal they had they had these arrangements as a skeleton and then they said, let's see what happens if we add this. There's a lot of experimentation going on here. At least that's, that's my perception. Yeah, it, um, it has very sort of symphonic parts. There's the use of the core anglais type sound. Yep. Um, the rimshot drums, vocal oohs and ahs. Yes, uh, yes. Pitch bend portamento. Um, and they all seem to work whenever they put... Um, put things in when they add in strings when they add flute it just seems to feel right however the songs themselves sitting behind if they were just to be played straight they'd probably still work oh 100 100 there's um an album that i've been listening to very recently i'm not going to give away anything we might be discussing this on a podcast very soon Uh, but um i i thought to myself this would only work in this arrangement, if it was being done with more natural instrumentation, it wouldn't necessarily work. It depends on electronics. Whereas, as you say, you know, uh, the, the, I think the strength of a great song is it doesn't matter if you're going to play it on a on a single guitar or if you're going to augment it with a thousand other instruments. You know, the great songwriting will always be great songwriting. Yeah, very yeah. much so. Um, I, I suppose this was really. Uh, getting back to my entry to the Flaming Lips, yep. um, where where it took off for me. And um, from there, I was eager to sort of delve into their history. Uh, came across She Don't Use Jelly pretty quickly. And there was also a fantastic um, J-Files on uh, Triple J, um, the national youth radio station here in Australia. Mm. Um, they did... Uh, a full hour show on the Flaming Lips and it was just uh, terrific music and they, they were um, I suppose um, introducing the soft bulletin and they were at the point of um, the at war with mystics yep. and really those um, three albums form I suppose um, a, a triage a high point the flaming lips thus far right Juan your your thoughts on initial thoughts on the album how long have you lived with the album uh fairly recently probably like for a year maybe a little bit more but um I I don't remember how I got into it I, I always knew about the flaming lips and I've heard a couple songs but I never really got into them until 
I, I think I was listening to, to Pandora a lot because uh, I wanted to expand, I guess, my, my musical taste. And I think that's where um, it, they popped up for, for me. And then I started really, like, the, I guess they really hit a chord yep. with me. And then I, I sought out this album. Have, have you had a chance? Have you seen them? No, I actually have tickets for to see them. I think in November. Oh, nice. So I'm looking forward to that. I've got a I got a bunch of shows that I've I've got coming up. Right. And uh, supporting them will be uh, the wonderful Western Australian band Tame Impala. Are they on the same yeah. bill as as as, um, as the Flaming Lips? Yep. Oh yep. man, you're you're a, you're a Tame Impala fan, aren't you? Aren't you, Juan? You know, I don't. I don't really know. I know that one song, that one like single that they have, but uh, but that's about it. Oh look, I'm. Are they doing a, an Australian tour? I know we're we're breaking away from the lips for a couple of minutes, but but uh, Dave, I, I, do you know if they're doing a local tour anytime soon? Not to my knowledge. I think they're following the flaming lips around for a fair while. Okay. Now because uh, you know, much to my shame, I mean, I've got I've got the albums, but still haven't had a chance to see them live. And I think probably more than just about any other band, they are a band I'm dying to see live. That'll be yeah, that'll be, that'll yeah. be, that'll be really really exciting. So did did you see them here like at the forum? Because they played the forum in Melbourne. No, I, I actually was lucky enough to see them at the Corner Hotel, oh, uh, wow. supporting Rocket Science. Okay. This was very early incarnations, but yeah. oh, loved what I heard from the get-go. Right. All right. Well, let's get back to um, to the lips. Well, we might have to um, do a whole show devoted to um, to Tame Impala at some stage, I think, because uh, given our enthusiasm for this. Um, so, so yeah. Anyway, so you're you're going to go see that, and you uh, expanded through um, was it Pandora? You say? I I think I think they came up on Pandora, and that's when I really started like searching them out. And, but, uh, and so what what drew you in? I mean, it was the electronic side of things, or had you heard more of the indie, the early indie side of things? Um, I think it was a bit of both. Like, I, it's one of those things where they came up, uh, you know, sporadically on my Pandora, and then I just had to create a Flaming Lips station. Okay. Based off of that, and then um, just kind of go that way. Right. But uh, but I am I'm I'm super looking forward to them uh, like playing live because I I've I've seen what they do live and i'm i'm planning on taking a needle just to pop that that big balloon that that wayne sits in <laughs> if, he, if he gets near me <laughs> yeah you and you and five wayne coin look out <laughs> yeah you, oh he's he, with any luck he's listening to the podcast and he'll say oh no 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 we can't send it that way can't send it that way um i i, I guess I, I mean i might have already stated this but i, I think Overall, what we have here is a work of great beauty, and I've, I've mentioned on the show a, a number of times that I'm a big fan of music where the music is saying one thing, and the lyrics are saying something completely different, because you've got these songs which are predominantly, they're not completely, but predominantly in major keys, and you've got these sweet melodies and gorgeous harmonies with songs about mortality and fear. Uh, and, and philosophy and, and disappointment, um, and even though you know, I, I know that you were saying, Dave, you know, quite rightly that you know it's a it's a concept album that ends at the fourth song. Um, yeah. I mean, technically speaking, I don't even think it works for four songs. I mean, I think it's really just Yoshimi battles the Pink Robots Part One and Two, and I don't think the first two tracks 
really bear much, uh, at least in terms of a story, maybe thematically they're linked. But I think if you want to say that this is a concept album, it's probably because that these, all these songs cover those emotions that I mentioned, you know, fear and, uh, and disappointment. Uh, and the different the different approaches to it. I mean, I, I know that um, we'll, we'll probably get to it in a few minutes. I, I know your favourite song, at least what I think you said last time, was your your favourite song. Uh, yeah. Well, let, let's talk about it now. Do you realise? Uh, uh, no, wait, that wasn't your favourite. No, it's summertime was mine. Oh well, bugger that. No, I'll work on this. <laughs> oh well, that, I've gone and fucked that up. I think "Do You Realize" was my favourite song, but I'm oh, not even okay. sure about that. Well, it could have changed. <laughs> But, um, no, I mean, look, you know what, I'd still like you to talk a little bit about Do You Realise at this point, Dave, because yeah. I remember I probably went and shot myself in the foot last time, and I'll do it again now, uh, thinking you know, about how gorgeous it was, and I like, once again, what it was trying to say, but didn't think, I thought that the lyrics at the time I thought were a little bit trite, and then you told me what the origins of the song were, and I felt like a real heel, so, uh, yeah. just, just run us by again. Um, do you realise what inspired the writing of that song? Yeah, well, basically, the song was written when Steve Droys, uh, the drummer and multi-musician, was uh, suffering from withdrawal from a heroin addiction. And it essentially was written as a healing song, I suppose, and uh, to deal with the withdrawal and was also as a reminder of um, Wayne Coyne's father's death and uh, it it's, is one of those really rare songs that it's played both at weddings and at funerals. Yes. It, it has that sort of happiness to it yet the, the melancholy sad part that everybody that we know someday will die. Mm. Yeah. This is actually a song that for for the for the list music podcast I chose as a funeral song and as a wedding song. So if you if you go back and listen to those, it's a, it's a little weird because it's the same track for both. And I, can't, uh, I can't remember. Did, did you did you cop any flack for that? Um, I don't think so. I okay. I, I don't remember, but I don't think so. I think it was fine. <laughs> I justified myself with the lyrics. Yeah, I, I, I've been finding myself singing this song a lot in the car of recently. Well, maybe not the uh, "Do you know that someday you will die?" bit, but you know when I'm when I'm sitting with my kids, I'm singing. You know, Do you realise that you have the most beautiful face? Shut up, Dad. Just keep driving. Okay. Yeah, I, I think I think the most uh, beautiful part of this song is um, also that ringing guitar, that sort of rolling guitar sound and the lyrics being scientifically correct it's the the inner nerd in me that <laughs> loves this album so okay so for the uh for the virgin listener please quote those scientifically correct lyrics yeah um you realize that the sun does not go down it's just an illusion caused by the world spinning round see now he's just gone and killed it for thousands of cliched songwriters out there who I'm, I'm sure had gone and used the uh, scientifically incorrect analogy of the, the sun rising up and, and going down, but he just had to go and screw things up, didn't he? Thank you, Wayne. <laughs> but it is, no, look, it is a, um, a absolutely gorgeous song. Uh, it, it 
I was mentioning before about you know the little details, and that's what I think the big strength. I mean, besides the songwriting, the arrangements on this album. So you have a jaw harp in there, you know, boing boing, you know, being played, and uh, the chimes. Uh, I don't know if they're bells or chimes uh, that you hear throughout the song. Yeah, the the strings coming in, building up to the crescendo at the end, the timing of the drums coming in. I think they really must have set out the timing of the song, saying at this time this instrument will come in, at this time it will fade away. Yep, yep. And they seem to have done everything down to the millisecond. Right, oh, yeah, well. I mean, I still think, though, that... I'm wondering if that was planned or whether... You know, they listen to that thing, right, oh, this song needs to have bells in it and we're going to put it between this point and this point. I mean, it'd be interesting to know whether this is all planned on paper in advance or, you know, whether they just sort of went with it as while they're in the studio. Because, I mean, this really, because it's layer upon layer upon layer. You, you, one would, unless, unless Wayne Coyne is um, a genius and can hear everything in his head at once, I just sort of imagine that there would have been something of a let's build this up like Lego feel along the way. Well, they they all seem to claim that rather than just playing a specific instrument, that they did play the recording studio. Right. Yeah. Oh, definitely, the recording studio is is an instrument on the, for uh, for this album. And I think probably why my earlier comparison to Sergeant Pepper was probably not a bad one. Yeah. Uh, another studio. Yeah. The studio as, as an instrument type of album. Um, yeah, I, I, I love the also the warm acoustic feel on this song, uh, the acoustic guitar, which I'm pretty sure is a 12 string. And there's actually a lot of that over the album. Yeah. Very yeah, nice the, the yeah. The the other little interesting trivia tidbit that I've got for you about this song oh, yeah. was that it was the state rock song of Oklahoma between the years 2009 and 2013. Why did they dump it? Um, They had a change of governor. Went from Democrat to Republican. Republicans don't like the flaming lips? No, because... uh, um, I don't think Republicans (laughs) like anything. (laughs) (laughs) No, because uh, Michael Irvins, the bass player, tends to wear CCCP shirts. That damn comic. Yeah. Uh, initially, the song was voted in with like 51% of the public vote. Mm-hmm. And it was vetoed by all of the Republicans uh, in Oklahoma. However, the governor of Oklahoma decided, well, it's the will of the people. It gets the nod. There right. you go. Oklahoma's lost. So we've spent a fair bit of time talking about Do You Realise? Um, favourite songs? Favourite songs for you guys? Do you want to go um, first I one? It, yeah, I, I think it, it's Do You. It's probably Do You Realise? But uh, Oh, that's right. Yeah, you, you had mentioned that. So yeah, what, what, what other highlights for you? Um, I really like... Um, let me let me look at the track listing because I, I, I'm horrible with song names. But uh, as soon as I see them, I, right. I can remember. Um, and I had this playing in my ear. All right, so uh, <laughs> I got to make it work for me. Okay. Uh, I really like Flight Test. I I, I love that it, it. I guess they they basically stole like the melody from um, K 
Cat Stevens, but I, I like Flaming Lips' version of this, I guess, yeah, melody. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, it, you know, it, it bothered me, you know, when I first I thought, this sounds like something. Sounds like something. And and then, you know, while I was you know, doing a little bit of reading up and found out that... It was, was there actually, like, legal proceedings yeah. uh, with Cat Stevens? Yeah, yeah three quarters so. of the money raised by this song actually goes to Cat Stevens. Wow. I guess that's... Um, I guess that's one one good thing about uh, iTunes, you know, being able to sort of download individual songs because they know, right? Okay, you, you get nothing of the rest of the album, but we you know this song, right? We've had ten thousand downloads, right? You get seven and a half thousand. So yeah, yeah, okay. So fight testing. I mean, yeah, that's a that's a really cool way that um, that the album starts, and, and you know, yeah. I, I think not just necessarily because of the uh, artwork on the front of the album but I listen to that and I guess you know uh, a song like Yoshimi Battles of Pink Robots and I really do get a vision in my head of of uh, manga drawing and you know uh, maybe not Kimber the White Knight God, God that shows how old I am and you know, my, my limited knowledge of manga but um, Astro Boy I get pictures of Astro Boy yeah um, interesting how you were talking about fight test the intro of the test begins now um, that actually comes from some experimentation that the Flaming Lips did. A series of tests called the Boombox Experiments, which followed what was called the Car Park Experiment, where they, they got a whole series of people to park their cars in a car park and basically uh, have sounds on a tape and to play their tapes all at the same time through their car radio and to shift the cars around the car park so that it has a moving wall of sound. Test didn't work terribly well, but they did really energize the band and it uh, did bring out thousands of people to look at the flaming lips. <laughs> that's, uh, that's an eccentric experiment, but, um, but yeah, you've got you to give them the, uh, the credit for having the balls to do something like that. Well, with modern electronics, they could probably do that experiment again and probably do it to a much um, higher level of sophistication and they'd probably get a better sound out of it if they were to try it now or even 10 years in the future. Who knows, we might be talking about car park experiments. <laughs> we could. Okay. We gotta start something in, in, uh, in over there in Australia and I'll try to start something here in LA. Yeah. How about that? We could sort of like have a um, a two car park. I mean, they were only doing it like in a limited geographical location, but you know, we could do it an international simultaneous car park sort of experiment. I think that would be fantastic. We'd be uh, seen as uh, as innovators. Yeah. Um, or mad. Or mad. Well, yeah, probably <laughs> the latter. Yeah, but, um, it's it's both. One doesn't go without the other. Uh, now. One thing, I think I mentioned this to last time we spoke was um, probably as much because of the drum work that is used on a lot of the songs of the album. Uh, there, there certainly seems to be there's very little, if anything, in the way used of tom-toms uh, on this album. But um, a, a lot of very tight sort of snare and open-shut hi-hat work going on here and it sort of reminds me a lot of listening to uh, Radiohead's OK Computer. 
I think, like, Are You a Hypnotist, which is probably my favourite track on the album, made me think of Airbag from uh, OK Computer. Not melodically, but just that, that whole very tight, very funky sort of uh, uh, drum feel. You know, what did you guys, uh, did you sort of see a, a um, Radiohead Flaming Lips connection on this album? I, I feel like the whole album is basically like the uh, like the Flaming Lips version of um, OK Computer. Like right. it's like their their OK Computer, which is a great thing because OK Computer is, is probably one of my top five albums. Right. So yeah. So there is definitely an electronic uh, feel that that they they use somewhat, but not uh, not I guess not uh, it's not overdone. This is what I'm saying. Yeah, I'd I'd agree with that assessment as well uh, I also love on Are You a Hypnotist the feel of the, the rolling organ and the, the lyrics the, the way that they manage to portray what is essentially an abusive relationship yep. whether it's referring to uh, drug addiction or being in a relationship where one partner is repeatedly abusive to another mm. yet that partner who's being abused keeps on going back to them prompting the question do they have some form of hypnotic control over them mm. I, th- I think it's probably not a coincidence that it, it, it's a we we're, were speaking before you know about well is this a concept album or isn't it and, and is the concept not so much about Yoshimi but I think that it's probably not just musically for no reason, but lyrically for you know, that we have "Are You a Hypnotist?" followed by "Summertime," followed by "Do You Realize?" because it's it's progressive. I mean, you know, "Are You a Hypnotist?" sort of is talking about, as you say, this very abusive relationship, and it's "Summertime." Uh, still sees, I, I guess, its singer uh, maybe a little bit uh, angry at you know, the other character, but then sort of saying, "Well, but hang on." You know, I'm prepared to forgive. You know, look outside. It's summertime. Maybe we can make things get better. Yeah, it's my favourite track on the album. It's summertime, and not only the the lyrics being sad and showing some uh, sympathy towards the person mm. uh, that they're being sung to. It also it's one of the rare times where we have. Uh, the major chord being happy, minor chord being sad. So when we're looking inside to ourselves, it's all minor chords, it's all that sort of dark place. Yet when you look outside, it starts going into the major chords and is bright and happy and there's a world full of possibility out there. It, yes. does, it does show a glimmer of hope. And it's, it's like... A, a technique used in stand-up comedy where they keep the tone very low in mm. conversation, depress people, and then gradually pull you up to somewhere high. It heightens that sort of happiness emotion. Mm. And that's what I think they really do achieve well in in this song. And I think that um, really uh, uh, it's a great trio of songs because you know, then you go on to do you realise so it's almost like okay uh, maybe maybe things will get better you have this level of, of optimism and then you get do you realise which sort of tempers that optimism yet again it's sort of like saying well hang on let's you know, let's be a little bit realistic about this you know, do you realise that everyone 
that he's going to die. And I just, I just sort of think it's a, it's a great trilogy of songs. They absolutely belong together in, in that order. I, I reckon it's not, not purely coincidental. Um, okay, what other points is I going to make? One thing I really, really like. I'm coming back to um, Are You a Hypnotist? And uh, I think I was discussing this with someone the other day, and um, yeah, they, I think they sort of also agree with this point. The choir that you get at the beginning and at the end of this song, which sounds very, very majestic, reminds me of that scene in uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, the castle anthrax. I don't know if you remember Sir Galahad seeing, you know, he's walking through the rain, trudging through the rain, and he sees this gigantic grail beacon shining above the castle and he hears this choir and now I can't listen to this song without thinking of Monty Python and the Holy Grail but turnabout's fair play maybe the next time I watch the film I'll probably think about the flat <laughs> yeah it, it does have that sort of you you have found the destination of your quest type feel to it yeah yeah definitely uh, what else what else I've written here oh yeah so summertime um did you get a feeling of uh, Neil Young there? I mean, I, as I, I got to say, Wayne Coyne's vocals actually sort of remind me a lot of them across uh, across the album, but certainly sometimes musically. Did, did you get that? Did you get that feeling? Too? I, I think Wayne Coyne's vocals have more or less channeled Neil Young since about 1995 <laughs> in terms of his style, okay. and that that just seems to be where he's drifted to with his vocals and it does does suit it's, it's, it's sort of like a, a, a vulnerability there i guess yeah but um the, the one thing that i sort of pulled out of its summertime was the end turnaround on guitar mm. it reminded me a lot of oasis and don't look back in anger okay. however oasis is one band that uh, Wayne Coyne and the Flaming Lips have openly said, "Look, they just don't do it for us." <laughs> <laughs> and, and did uh, did uh, Noel or Liam Gallagher say, "Well, they're a bunch of fuckers anyway," or, or something like that? I'm sure they did. <laughs> so they're they're busy hating the rest of the uh, rock and roll world. Yeah. Uh, what else? Did I, what else? Um, I guess the only other song I wanted to uh, bring up because. I guess it has a real sense of melancholy and I, I imagine that if Ricardo is a fan of this album one then all we have is now the uh, second last tune on the album would have to be his favorite because this just sounds so damn sad but you know in a beautiful way and I know there's something about the instrumentation I can't put my finger on it that makes me think that this song would fit in beautifully in um, Peter Gabriel era Genesis, like on an album like The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. Maybe not lyrically so much, but musically certainly it just seems to have that uh, Lamb Lies Down on Broadway feeling. Uh, and yeah. it, it's, uh, I guess it probably works in contrast with those other songs that we were talking about before. I, I like the ambiguity of it. I mean, we, we heard before about. Really, you know, everyone you know one day is going to die. But you know, here he sings, "All we have is now, all we've ever had is now," and that really could be a glasses half full, glasses half empty type of approach. Whichever you want to take it, it could be, "Well, this is what we have. Let's celebrate it." Or don't try making plans for the future because really, all we have is now. I, I like the ambiguity. 
yeah. Um, go ahead, Dave. Yeah, no, it, it, it very much does have that wonderful feel. Also, with with the dark, uh, repeating vocals after each line is sung, it, it does give you more of, I suppose, the negative, um, the don't go making any plans to it. Uh, musically, it certainly does, yeah. Yeah, yeah, lyrically, it's like, yeah, all we have is now. Mm. It's <laughs> go out and do something type thing. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, no, musically, it certainly has that uh, that sense of melancholy. And that's, yeah. Ask, ask Ricardo whether he's a fan of this song. Is he a fan of the lips in general? I, you know, I'm not too sure. I don't think I don't think he is. I don't think he dislikes them, but I don't think he ever really got into them. I'm gonna I'm gonna so. put a link up with this song and you know, point it towards Ricardo's way and say, "This is sad. Do you like it?" And see what he comes back with. <laughs> I think. Um, I'm sure he will. Oh, good. Yeah. All right. No, so, any final thoughts? Yeah. No, I've got uh, two more tracks. Oh, go for I'll it. Like go for it. Yeah. Please. Um, the instrumental track at the end, uh, approaching. Parvis Mons by Balloon. Yep. Uh, Parvis Mons being the third highest peak on Mars. Uh, it actually won a Grammy for the best rock instrumental. Right, right. Yeah, and um, very much a different direction to the whole album. It's like there, there were like 10 tracks of um, either talking about robotic consciousness or. Um, the human condition and then you have this track 11 out of nowhere that mm, mm. is completely different to the rest of the album more electronics on it than, uh, than the rest of the album would you say? yeah pretty much um, and um, very sort of interesting arrangement with uh, the low sounding guitar and the trumpets right at the forefront right yeah, it, it does have have it. You can imagine uh, the balloon trip going over Harvest Mall. Um, it does have that sort of drifting in a Martian wind type feel to it. And the the final track that I I suppose I wanted to talk about was the one that you said was your favourite track, yep. um, being Yoshimi Battles the Pink Robots Part One. And uh, how we saw our, well, I saw our favourite busking duo at Parliament Station playing uh, this track. Oh, nice, nice. Okay, uh, explain to Juan about our favourite busking duo. Yeah, okay. We've got uh, two very highly regarded uh, Melbourne musicians, uh, Dan Warner and Dave Evans, and they busk at um, Parliament Railway Station, which is the semi-major railway station uh, and they busk at the exit of it so they get essentially a crowd who's um, walking on their way to work on their way to work every day go past them and they essentially play from about seven in the morning to nine in the morning and they do it instead of practicing at home they figure might as well go out busking and get paid to practice (laughs) i like that so I mean Dan Dan Warner he um, was in a band in the 80s here in Melbourne called uh, the Warner Brothers and they were threatened by the film company uh, to cease and desist which um, 
Uh, it was you know, high, high shame and unprofessional on their part, but not the first time I believe they've done that. Uh, apparently they sent a cease and desist to um, the Marx Brothers for calling their film a night in Casablanca. And you know, Groucho famously went and wrote back to them saying, oh, I want to sue us for using the word brothers in the name of Marx Brothers because you had it first. But anyway, <laughs> but anyway, so you know, the, the Warner Brothers were a really great sort of folky rock band in um, in the 80s. And uh, I, I wouldn't say I saw them lots and lots of times, but certainly saw them a few times. And uh, it's, you know, it's just a thrill to see uh, this great musician you know, doing his practice in, in the street. And he's just a lovely, lovely guy. You know, Dave and I frequently have, uh, you know, we'll stop and uh, throw him some money and you know, have, a, have a bit of a yak with him and make requests and uh, I'm, I'm still waiting for him to do uh, Best Years of Our Lives by Richard Clapton he keeps saying oh I've got to remember the words got to remember the words and I don't know one of these days but anyway so you reckon he does Yoshimi part one yeah yep and uh, they did a very good job of it which sort of put the album back into uh, my mind for which album to do mm. uh, for this podcast uh, and the the song itself dealing with um, a, a battle with cancer and um, the medication and the fighting of it. Therefore, the pink robots being a, a metaphor for the, the disease. See, that's why I'm glad I had you on the show because I did not know that. I, did, I just sort of thought it, it was just a nice... Like, taking really, a shame, like, at face value, I just sort of thought it was a nice, cute, uh, whimsical, uh, kid-style song you know very very natural almost like you know singing as she's a black belt in karate uh don't let those robots eat me uh those evil natured robots they're programmed to destroy us and, and there you go making sense of it yeah but um also the 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 song the yashimi battles the pink robots and several other flaming lips songs have been made into a musical Okay. Called Yoshimi Battles the Pink Robots. How imaginative. Yeah, very true. <laughs> but it doesn't just take material uh, from this album. It does go uh, through the soft bulletin as well. Mm-hmm. But um, it, it does follow the themes of the Yoshimi Part 1. Yep. The girl who's struck down with a disease. And it has a bit of a uh, neither... Neither shall die while the other lives. It's a little bit sort of Harry Potter-esque in terms of its theme. But I believe the show is is playing its way around the states. It, it's actually it's actually here in LA. At least the last time I checked, which is when when we last recorded, I was really curious about it. And then uh, and then I saw the I guess the trailer for it because they have like a little thing where you can kind of see a little bit about. Yep what's going on and i was like this is the flaming lips i i don't like musicals but it's music i like <laughs> and uh I, I maybe i'll give it a chance and yep. i saw the trailer and i'm like no this is not for me <laughs> I'll, I'll just walk away uh, like in shame yeah, uh you, you don't like when they uh, take that rock ethos and, and uh just straighten it out make it a bit was it a bit flat I, I don't know. I just like it was. It was. It was a musical. It was definitely like it's unabashedly a musical, and I, 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 I had to walk, walk back slowly, and then turn around. <laughs> okay. What? There, there was no inflatable ball crowd surfing. No confetti. <laughs> no, there was like they, they actually had these like giant robot 
things like puppets that were on stage from what I saw and it was it looked kind of interesting but uh, I guess the, the dialogue is what kind of like it's all sung and, and I'm not, not into that right while I was in London I think back in 1996 the, they were doing like a, a musical version of uh, of Tommy which you know I mean basically well you know, it was more or less I mean the, the, the same thing as the Who album because uh, you know, I mean that was all music driven to begin with I mean you know, there are a couple of extra songs here and there but yeah more or less the same thing and the original Who album was using song lyrics as dialogue but it was sort of strange to see it all acted out I mean notwithstanding you know there's the film which I hate but seeing this on stage it was it was a little bit weird but by and large I actually think it worked but I, I, I guess I'm, I don't have quite the distaste that, that maybe you do for uh, for, uh, for musicals but, um, but on the other hand being a big fan of The Who I was thinking yeah. you know, if this doesn't work it's going to be sacred yeah well for me it's like I'm willing to give it a shot if it's something if it's based off of something I like for example yeah I, 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 I might check out The Who like if they if they did Tommy because I like the Who, but uh, I'd have to see something first to be able to like be like, okay, maybe I can I can get through this. You know? Yeah. It's like it's a, sometimes you just like you're curious. For example, I was hearing all this buzz about about uh, Les Misérables, the movie, and I'm like, I mean, I don't like musicals, but I'm hearing good things. I'll I'll try it out. And it was the longest fucking movie I've ever <laughs> been to. <laughs> yeah. I'm just just wondering, have either of you two? been to see we will rock you not in this lifetime no i, I suspect not in the next lifetime either <laughs> yeah me, did, you, me did you go no i'm yet to see it but i'm i'm sort of tempted if it ever makes its way back to australia mm. either that or i'll have to go to london's west end to see it actually so, you know what no i haven't seen it i didn't mean to be so disdainful about it i mean i still wouldn't see it but I was thinking for some reason of Rock of Ages. That's the one I won't see in 10,000 lifetimes. Maybe in the next lifetime I'll see the real Rock of Ages. I didn't want to do that. Alright, um, before we sort of like leave off uh, talking completely about uh, the, uh, Yoshimi Battles of Pink Robots, when I sort of artificially decided, right, we'll put these two albums together for the show when you each came up with your suggestions, I sort of thought, well, you know, King Crimson's a prog band and this album, well, I don't know, you could debate it, have an arm wrestle to decide whether or not it's proggy or not. I mean, you know, or 20 I, I vote it is. Okay, well, it, you know, it, it works because then otherwise I have... I thought I had no connection for the show, but superficially, we had another connection for the show. So I, I was looking up on YouTube you know, a few weeks back and saw the Flaming Lips do a cover of 21st Century Schizoid Man. So I thought, right, yeah. that works. They're prog. So um, there you it go. It was we... yours truly who pointed you in that direction, Morris. Was it you? Was it yeah. you? I, I didn't find that for myself. No. Okay, well, there I you go. Cred out for credit, credit where credit's due. Dave, you pointed me in that direction. Thank you very much. Yeah, but um, the, the Flaming Lips are very much into doing covers and covers of songs that no other band would seem to touch. Or maybe taking songs that are you know, very well known but doing it their way. So their, their version of Dark Side of the Moon. Yeah. That's and they also, very different, isn't it? Oh, it is. 
they also do a, a pretty good version of Bohemian Rhapsody, and they do a very different Seven Nation Army. Okay, now that I have to hear. And get your head, get your ears around their cover of Kylie's "Can't Get You Out of My Head." No, some things I'm not meant to hear, not even out of curiosity. <laughs> <laughs> Also, then again, but then again, as I've mentioned many times on the show, Richard Thompson has done, whoops, I did it again, and he, he did it completely straight-faced and, and did it fantastically, so, so there you go. Uh, they've also been pretty good collaborators, the Flaming Lips, over time, like they were the backing band for Beck at one stage. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. And um, perhaps their most famous collaboration was with the Chemical Brothers and the song The Golden Path. And wonderful sounding tune. Only Chemical Brothers song that I really, really love. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah, they're not, not surprisingly to you, I guess. They're not a, um, a well, they're not an entity that can do anything for me in those cafes. But um, I, I, look, I was making mention before that you know normally I like my my records a lot more. I hate using the word organic, but you know I, I use differentiate between that between electronics and. and conventional instruments and yet it's all like thinking about this albums like Yankee Hotel Foxtrot by Wilco which is very electronic in its outlook and or very experimental and certainly Odelay by Beck um, are both albums that I dearly love in my collection so I guess maybe this wasn't as much of a stretch for me anyway I think so we've pretty much covered all we wanted to talk about this album one any final thoughts um, no, I don't. I think we, we pretty much covered it. Okay. All right. So, um, I guess that brings us to the end of uh, episode 51 of Love That Album. Before we head out, uh, just a couple of points, I guess. Uh, Juan, you want to give um, a big rousing plug for the List Music Podcast, your uh, regular gig? Yeah. Um, I do a podcast with, uh, I guess it's, uh, for, for the time being, it's two other people. Um, and we basically, we take a topic um, and then we, we uh, do our top five based around that, that topic. So I think the episode that's up right now, the newest episode is uh, uh, 70s Punk, where we have uh, Eric Reanimator, Eric Peterson on as a guest. And uh, like we said at the beginning, he schooled us. Oh yeah. Did you did you feel like guests on your own show? Kind of, yeah. <laughs> but it's not necessarily a bad thing. No, no, I think yeah, Eric was doing all the heavy lifting. So no, no, no. I, I, I think everyone sounded like they were having a, a really really good time. I mean, you know, Eric told me about it a week ago. You know, when we were um, when we were oh, well, recently while we were recording shooting the shed. I said, oh, how did it go? He said, oh yeah, look, it, it went really great. Um, poor Jenny only had two songs. Um, <laughs> I said to her, well, do you like Blondie? Yeah. Well, they're punk. Uh, do you like Talking Heads? Yeah. Well, they're punk. So, um, certainly, I, I guess, yeah, the, uh, the education there is uh, seeing yeah. punk in a completely different light. Yeah. I think what was funny about the, the whole Jenny thing is that instead of making her two picks numbers two and one, she just <laughs> did five and four. As I'm like, well, they're not good enough to be, you know, your top two. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, okay, so how can people find the, uh, the podcast if they uh, want to download it? Uh, you can find it on iTunes. You can find it on Stitcher. Um, pretty much, you can uh, pretty much search it out on, on uh, any like search engine and, and it'll pop up. 
um, but probably iTunes is the easiest route. Um, yeah, just look up uh, the List Music Podcast. Excellent. You can, you can also go to the website, listmusicpodcast.com. Okay, I know that um, Dave has uh, some music that he wishes to plug, but before we do that, we'll run through the podcast role of honor, as I like to call it. Special uh, thanks to the other podcasts which uh, support my show and I love to listen to. Uh, so, in no particular order, Paleo Cinema and the Martian Driving podcast, hosted by Terry Frost from Melbourne, so in our hometown. Uh, Silver and Gold, hosted by Pickleloaf and Dr. Zom. I did the rolling R, very good. Um, yeah, you sound Mexican. Uh, really? I didn't, I didn't think so. I think he was trying to say <laughs> more, East, more Eastern European. You know. Do- Dr. Oh, there I go. Oh, that's true. That's uh, true. Uh, the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, hosted by uh, Sammy and Will. And uh, only very recently, uh, Eric Reanimator and our very good friend Tim Merrill hosted uh, an episode of uh, the GGTMC. I think they mentioned it on the, the List Music podcast. He mentioned that they were talking about the uh, American astronaut yes. and Human Highway, uh, the Neil Young slash Devo film. Uh, so um, listen to that. It's uh, incredibly entertaining and is always educational. And, um, you think that Eric knows his stuff. Well, I'll tell you that uh, Tim uh, is every bit is equal and uh, it's really interesting but sometimes they have different perspectives on the same material and won't always agree so hearing the two of them sort of you know, come at opposite ends of the spectrum about the same material is really fascinating so uh, if you haven't listened to that I urge you to do so uh, Better in the Dark hosted by Thomas DJ and Derek Ferguson I'm hoping to have uh, Derek on the show sometime soon I've had uh, Thomas a couple of times uh, Talk Without Rhythm uh, film Rave, hosted by Justin Oberholzer, and I've just discovered a new film podcast. They're only, as we record this, only up to their second episode. It's called The Trashy Trio, and they're taking, um, well, as the name implies, really trash Z-grade genre films, and they basically sort of, you know, break it down and... Uh, they, I mean, they, yeah, they, they take Z-grade films, but you know, there's a lot of pride in that. So it's just a matter of whether the film is... If the film is shitty, but it's entertainingly shitty, or if it's just shitty, shitty. And I think that's their um, that's their attack on it. And uh, So, yeah, really, uh, I've only heard the first one. The second one's only just come out, I think, in the last day or so as we record, so I'm looking forward to giving another so listen. So what, what movies did, did they talk about when you heard them? Schoolgirl Hitchhikers. Sex kittens who stop at nothing. Um, now this is interesting because I, I think they watched it on uh, one of the uh, streaming services that uh, you have in, in the states. We don't really have, I mean, we have streaming services, but it's nothing as good as Netflix. Where it seems like you have absolutely everything. I think we just have the most mainstream of mainstream films, and there's you know there's really nothing nothing in our local streaming services. So we're over there, yeah. you can watch everything. But I believe school, this film, Schoolgirl Hitchhikers, which actually has nothing to do with schoolgirls or hitchhikers, uh, is on YouTube, but they reckon that all the uh, choice bits are actually cut out uh, on the YouTube version. So you're just left with all the shitty bits. Um, but um, I, I think in the end, after all that, they said it was pretty much a thumbs down shitty film, not a thumbs up shitty film. So, mm. so that's it. But really, what's entertaining is hearing them talk about it. Uh, 
so anyway yeah there you go the trashy trio uh and so what else have we got in the musical arena we've got uh sitting in a bar in adelaide hosted by my very good friend michael Persh, who joined me on the previous episode of uh, love that album to uh, shoot the shit uh, as did Eric Reanimator and Tim Merrill and John Sterrett from Sydney. Uh, the all-time top 10 podcast hosted by Ben Eisen, also from uh, your city of Los Angeles. Uh, Soda Jerker on songwriting, hosted by Simon and Brian, and I really can't have enough good to say about these guys. They managed to get all these incredible famous songwriters and get them to talk about their songwriting craft and how they do it and it's just really a joy to behold they ask intelligent questions and the songwriters who they have just seem to open up to them and they, they'll get you know people from the pop world like uh, Andy Partridge from XTC and they'll get uh, you know guys like Richard Sherman who wrote songs for all the uh, uh, Walt Disney animated films of the 60s like you know the Jungle Book so um, they're just interested in great songwriting craft. They're not limiting themselves to genre. Uh, I'm trying to remember if they even had Neil Sedaka on the show. So um, just yeah, incredible. It's really, really wonderful. Where did to listen to? Uh, I know a, a show that you're uh, very, very big on. Um, one is uh, the Inside Outcast with Evil Dave and Doctor Brandy's sexy voice. I, I just, yeah. I just love. I love saying that. I love saying that. As do I. Yeah. I think that's probably why, you know, I, I'm sure that's the name she was born with, right? Of course, yeah. yeah of course. Well, that, that means she had to get her PhD to be able to add that to her name, you know, right. Dr. Brandy Sexy Voice. Oh, she, she was, she was, she was merely Brandy Sexy Voice, but yeah, right for sure. Uh, and and, and uh, of course the List Music Podcast and the Film Podcast, no longer the List Film Podcast, just the Film Podcast. So that's. Uh, Jenny and Ricardo. I, I should ask, sort of just coming back to uh, the List Music podcast for a second, how do you feel, how have you felt without, without VK in, in uh, the room with you? Does it feel weird, unusual? Because you used to spar a lot with her. I mean, does it feel yeah. good that, uh, unusual that you have no one to argue with anymore? No, I, I liked it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think, um, I, don't, I don't know what it was I, with those, I guess those battles, but um, I feel like the more I got to know VK, the more I had in common with her. Yeah, it's just we just kind of—I don't know. I don't know. I, maybe I—I I don't know why she always wanted to—I to, to, don't know—start something with me. And uh, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it was all in good fun, and I—I—I uh, I, I, I miss her. Like uh, there's a void in in the pod podland, yeah. as we call it, um, with you know her doing the music. Um, I guess on a, on a more regular basis, and now she can't really do the podcast as as much, but uh, she'll she'll still be on occasionally. Okay, now we look forward to uh, hearing her more because she's certainly a very vital part of the show. And on the other hand, I'm also sort of looking forward. She you know indicated that she might be coming to do something musically here in Australia, so um, be looking forward to uh, seeing her play and meeting her in the flesh. That'd be really nice. Yeah, that would be. All right, uh, Dave. Before we head out, um, oh, one more thing, I guess I should say, what we're going to be doing next time on the show. So, for those of you who know me, and you know, we've been speaking a lot about you know, my love of uh, more natural-sounding instrumentation, so this is going to be an interesting one. I've been challenged by John Ross, who hosts the 
Feed My Ears Facebook page. He said, get a little bit uncomfortable. I said, well, how do you suggest? He said, right, well, I'd like to come on a show where we're going to talk about uh, Massive Attack album Mezzanine. Uh, right, okay. And we've coupled that with Portishead's Dummy. So tune into episode 52 to hear me make a real idiot of myself. Because he's a, cause really, trip-hop is not necessarily a genre I know a whole lot about. But, you know, like everyone, I have an opinion. So um, that'll be a lot of fun. That'll be uh, myself, John Ross, and Tim Merrill. Uh, so that'll be episode 52. A little bit of trip-hop for you. So um, we'll see whether I make a complete imbecile of myself. All right, I think that pretty much covers it. So, um, so Dave, what are we yes. going to do on the, on, on the way out? Yeah, on the way out, we're going to be listening to a tune from a favourite Melbourne band of mine, uh, one who I've seen go through uh, several different um, band names and lineups. They're now called Andre Warhurst and the Rare Birds, and it's a song from their forthcoming album, Blue-Eyed Hurricane, and the song's called Dizzy High. Let's give this a listen, looking forward to it, and uh, looking forward to actually getting around to seeing them with you at a gig with them talking about it for so long um okay so uh we'll, we'll go into that in a sec so just wanted to thank you both very much uh gentlemen for uh joining me on uh, the podcast episode 51 it's been truly a treat uh, and thanks once again because you know all the technical difficulties we had last time to uh come and talk about these same albums again next time uh, we get together we'll talk about something different but uh, i really appreciate yeah. you taking the time and you know you one getting up early and you dave staying up late yeah, no, yeah, it's, no, it's fun. Uh, just glad you, you want us back on. Oh, yeah. I'll have you back on. It's uh, going to be a lot of fun. But, you know, pro rata. I mean, I, I want I want to look, see back into uh, the List Music podcast before the end of the year, I think. Yeah, we'll, we'll make that happen. Excellent. All right, gents, we'll uh, fade out with uh, Andre Warhurst and the Rare Birds. And uh, we'll see you in a few weeks with episode 52 of Love That Album. Thanks for joining us. Cheers. Watching the luck in it right A dizzy high A dizzy high
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.